I'm Chuck Smeaton from the Royal Institution of Australia, and this is the Cosmos Briefing Podcast. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land where I speak to you from today, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Today, we are looking at the sex and gender data gaps in medicine, how they can result in worse outcomes for everyone, what we still don't know, and how we can address the issue. Our expert in these matters is Professor Zoe Weiner, Deputy Secretary of Public Health in the Victorian Department of Health. She has a clinical background in cardiothoracic surgery and surgical oncology, as well as public health and health administration. And her PhD was on sex differences in outcomes for people with lung cancer. She talks to Cosmos science journalist Ellen Fidian. Professor Zoe Weiner, thank you very much for joining us. Absolute pleasure, Ellen. Thank you for inviting me. So Zoe, first question, can you explain what we mean when we're talking about gender data gap? So firstly, Ellen, I think it's really important to define the difference between the term sex and gender. Mm -hmm. Um, Often we use gender when we mean sex. So sex refers to the biological differences that we see between men and women. Um, It may not be dichotomous, but we don't yet fully understand that from a biological perspective. But gender refers to what that sex, what your sex means in a social and cultural uh, context as well. Um, so I think that's a really important piece to pick up in answering that question, because you've asked me about the gender data gap, which there absolutely is one, um, mm. and it's great to see uh, our large institutions grappling with that more and more. Um, but I think we could almost go back to a kind of a more um, basic principle around sex. It's a it's a variable that we usually or we often actually collect, but we don't disaggregate research data or clinical data by sex and then compare and see if there's a difference between men and women. So that's probably the one systematic issue we have across a lot of the data. And what our researchers do um, is put sex as a variable into their statistical analyses in a multivariate analysis and they think they've answered the question is there a difference but in actual fact all they've done in in their um in their statistical analysis is controlled for sex if there is a difference so it's actually removing it as a variable from impacting research as opposed to what would be a much better approach which would be to have equal numbers of men and women or male and female animals or even cell lines need to have a sex. So every cell in your body has a sex. Um, We need to have equal numbers of males and females and enough that we can compare the two populations to see if there is a difference. So are there areas of medicine where the difference in sex we think is more significant? So there are certainly areas in healthcare where we are, we're aware of the difference. That doesn't mean there aren't areas that there is a difference that we're not aware of because, as I said, we don't routinely, systematically see if there is a difference between men and women in healthcare. Um, A couple of areas where there's quite a lot of data in that space, one of them is in heart disease. Mm -hmm. So we know oestrogen is protective for women against heart disease, but we know once women have heart disease, they often have worse outcomes. There was a publication um, in the Medical Journal of Australia that showed that if you're a woman and you have a serious heart attack and you present to an Australian emergency department, you're half as likely to get the care you need as a man and twice as likely to be dead in six months. 
Now, I don't know how that's a stop the presses. We have to, you know, massively look at this problem across the country. It's a safety and quality issue. It impacts sustainability of, you know, the healthcare system because we're having to provide more care to sicker people where we could actually do, you know, secondary prevention or or respond to the symptoms much more quickly. Uh, So that's one example. There's another example where in orthopaedics, a lot of the medical device companies don't design knee and hip replacements um, for women. They actually design them on men and then they create smaller ones for women. But if you actually look at a pelvis of a woman and a man, they're quite different and our hips and our knees have different angles to them. And those devices don't allow for that. And it results in greater complications in women who have knee and hip replacements because the devices are at the wrong angle for them. So they're more likely to need a revision um, and more likely to have complications. So again, that's a health outcome issue. It's a healthcare sustainability issue. It's a safety and quality issue. But as a, this is not actually about all about women. It's about the whole of the population. And there are examples where men have worse outcomes. Cancer is one of them. We know that men have worse outcomes in cancer um, across most solid non-reproductive cancers. Another one I think that's really important to call out is actually infectious diseases. So we've seen quite a difference between men and women in the epidemiology of COVID. Men have been more likely to get severe COVID. Women are more likely to get long COVID. And that follows our understanding of the difference in the in the immune system. But yet again, we're not systematically looking at our treatments and our vaccines sex disaggregated. So that it, it remains another challenge to actually take that understanding of the differences and implement it to get better health outcomes. I think the other area that's important to point out in terms of um, differences where men have worse outcomes is potentially anxiety and depression in mental health. So a lot of the diagnostics for anxiety and depression were developed around women's symptoms and men have different symptoms. So there's a real risk we we underdiagnose men with mental illness and anxiety and depression because we don't have the right um, symptoms identified. So it obviously wanders across all fields. How do you think it should be addressed? Is it as simple as consistently including equal balances of sex and gender in every study or is it more complicated than that? So it does possibly go across all areas. We don't know. Um, And there's a a wonderful um, uh, United States 60 Minutes, uh, I think it was from 2013, clip on the internet where a neuroscientist talks about his um, work in the medication Zolpidem or Stilnox, which Mm -hmm. is a sedative. And they'd noticed that people were having car accidents at a higher rate if they'd had Zolpidem or Stilnox. So they wanted to to look at driver safety studies. So they administered this medication and what they found, and they weren't looking for it, and they were completely shocked, was that 12 and 24 hours after administration, women have a 45% higher blood level. So we are potentially double-dosing women on that medication. Um, America, as a consequence, um, instituted a requirement for the company to actually have a sex and an age dosage recommendation. We haven't yet done that in Australia. Um, but he, in that clip, there's a lovely moment where he says, and I'm, I won't get the quote correct, but you'll get the sense of it. He said there might be a difference. There might not be a difference. But if we don't look, we won't know. And the difference may actually provide some critical biological insights to better outcomes that we might learn from women, say, and give to men or vice versa in how we develop therapeutics. But to answer the um, 
the, the core of your question as well. Uh, and, and I'm happy to share a link for, uh, for viewers around an article that I was proud to be a part of publishing um, in the Medical Journal of Australia again, which was looking at what's happening in Europe, what's happening in North America in terms of sex and gender research, and what are we doing in Australia, and what do we need to change to actually get up to global standards on, on or gold standard in this space. So really exciting work um, by a group called Gendered Innovations at Stanford University. And if the um, listeners and viewers are interested, it's worth checking out that website. They've actually collated uh, policies from around the world that address these issues. So policy is one lever um, that we can absolutely use. Uh, ensuring funding uh, is, is adequate to compare male and female cell lines, male and female animal models, or men and women. So you actually need a greater number in the population to be able to then compare the two. So it might cost more, but you know, as uh, Londa Scheibinger, Professor Londa Scheibinger from uh, Stanford says, it, it's, it's just good science. You can't not do it. Um, and, and in fact, what the cost actually potentially saves significant cost up the other end. There was a study in America that of 10 drugs that got pulled off the market, nine were because they had greater side effects than women and they hadn't tested the difference between men and women in development. So really driving that through a policy perspective around funding when the um, not, not just from this, uh, but when the Zolpidem story or the Still Not story broke in America, there have been a huge amount of work behind the scenes as well. The National Institute of Health in America, who is, you know, the major government funding body for medical research, they instituted a new policy which said if you, that in order to get funding, you have to compare male and females and you have to have enough in there to make it a meaningful statistical finding if there's a difference. Um, they will not fund uh, research that doesn't address that issue anymore. And, and they additionally injected money into existing research to allow them to um, up the population levels to be able to compare males and females. So that's certainly one really significant lever. I think the other opportunity for us is to think about it in a quality and safety perspective um, in healthcare. Obviously, we measure the negative outcomes that people have if they have to go to intensive care and they weren't meant to, or they need to be readmitted after surgery, or we measure all of that, um, but we don't look at it disaggregated by sex. We're not understanding really where some of these differences are and how we might improve them. And even when we are, like the example I gave you in a heart attack for women, we're not actually implementing any changes to address that. We just keep reporting at the epidemiological level. So how do we use our quality and safety mechanisms in healthcare to really see this in that lens? I know the Australian Commission for Safety and Quality is, is doing some good work in this space as well, starting to look at the differences when they're doing some of their reporting. Um, the other one for me is also thinking about the economic impact. And it's not just the economic impact of men and women having worse outcomes, which obviously costs the care system more. It's the economic impact of their ability to contribute to society as well. Um, so, you know, health is, of course, a whole of, a whole of government, a whole of policy, a whole of community issue. And I think it's important for us to not lose sight of, of that as well. That makes a lot of sense. So I get the impression that... Um obviously the first problem is that we just don't know the size or the scale of the problem because we don't collect this sort of data. But even if we did, there's still stuff we would need to do beyond that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think I did leave out one area which is critical and that's the academic uh, community. And I don't mean academic in terms of research, I mean in education. So we need to teach our healthcare professionals that this is an issue. Uh, and, it, and it takes, interestingly, 
women in in healthcare to see that the women are missing, if that makes sense. It's one of the critical components of um, of diversity. We know that, and and the risk of the privilege privilege of partial perspective, as we call it, um, or unconscious bias, I think, is is something that needs to be addressed as well. So, building that into the education of our next generation of healthcare practitioners is another really pretty important lever too. I know one of the sort of thorny areas here is pregnancy because it's hard to test things. Uh, because there are ethical considerations to take into account when you're testing a new treatment on someone who's pregnant. Does that factor into the um, debate as well and then the testing and the trials? Yeah, look, it's a great question, Alan. It's not an area of expertise of mine, but I will make the observation that, that we don't, you're right, we often exclude pregnancy because, you know, of issues like um, thalidomide in the past, but but that actually leaves pregnant women and doctors in an invidious position because they do need care and they do need access to medications and doctors therefore have to prescribe not knowing if it's safe and women have to take the risk not knowing if it's safe. So we really do need a more sophisticated mechanism to understand the, the safety profile for pregnant women. And simply excluding. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you very much for joining us, Zoe. Thanks so much for having me, Ellen, and um, yeah, really appreciate and enjoyed the conversation. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. Remember that you can head to cosmosmagazine.com via the link in the description for more great content. You can also subscribe to Cosmos Magazine, Australia's only science print magazine, and Cosmos Weekly with its unique approach to how science, news and the economy intersect. Podcast listeners can get both products at a special price using the coupon code you will also find in the description. Of course, you can watch and listen to all our Cosmos briefings via the link in the description too. And remember, if you support science and its communication, please support our work at the Royal Institution of Australia. I'm Chuck Smeaton, and today's interview was conducted by Ellen Fidian. Thank you. Ever wondered how old the Earth is and how we know? Or exactly how popping candy works? From Listener and Cosmos magazine comes Huh? Science Explained, a weekly podcast where we answer all of life's questions, big and small. No lab coats required. And we'll do it in 10 minutes or less. Search Huh? Science Explained. Download the Listener app now and listen for free. Listener.